This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, and discussion of graphic violence and murder. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 270. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and tell you all about my journey as a writing professional. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 11 of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Dell and Trace successfully handed off the syndicate package that they had stolen from Daniel and Victor. Dell used his telekinesis to float it down to an access hatch in the skyport, where Fiona took it into the ventilation system. The Summers team looked like they were about to pull this mission off without a hitch. Moments later, though, Victor re-entered the fight, healed by Daniel's psi powers and ready for payback. Armed with a handful of slugs and his own fearsome telekinesis, he ambushed Dell and Trace as they were headed back to the cockpit. Trace's precog gave him just enough warning to leap in front of the bullet intended for Dell, taking the hit in his left lung. Dell returned fire, but Victor deflected the bullets with a psychokinetic shield, a trick that requires both telekinesis and ESP, which Dell does not have. Dell and Victor got into a telekinetic tug of war over Dell's gun, but when Dell realized that Trace was dying, his concentration faltered. Victor snatched the gun away and emptied it into Dell, killing him. Then Victor used one last telekinetic bullet to kill Trace. Rejoining Daniel, Victor radioed down to Callie and warned her that Agent Alpha Niner has the package, referring to Fiona. Obviously, these two had been briefed on the fact that Sighs were likely to be after the package, a fact that Victor had kept Daniel in the dark about. Daniel still doesn't know that the two men Victor just murdered are his former Skyball teammates and childhood friends. Everyone involved in the op is still covered by disguise charms of one sort or another. However, the fact that Victor just killed two fellow Sighs is bad enough. Sighs aren't supposed to harm other members of the Collective. If anyone in the Hive finds out that Daniel helped him do it, he's a dead man. Down on the ground, Sasha could only hear fragments of Del and Trace's thoughts as the battle unfolded. She could tell that the men were fighting a rogue telekinetic, and she felt it when her friends were killed. But there's no time to mourn. Fiona has the package, and she needs Sasha's help to navigate safely out of the building. With tremendous effort, Sasha pushed back her grief, and focused on trying to get the rest of them out alive. 
Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 11 Fiona aimed her electric torch at the array of numbers and letters written at each corner of the intersection in front of her. 77-E1-AQ10. She suppressed a sigh. It would be illogical, she supposed, to expect the designers of the ventilation system to provide an easily understood system of navigation. It wasn't as if they would want to encourage the sort of intrusion in which she was currently engaged. Brian, she said, focusing her thoughts into the telepathic link. Show me the schematics around intersection 77 Mark E1 Mark AQ10. She closed her eyes and watched as lines of green light sketched themselves across her vision, forming an intricate web of connecting passages. One intersection was limbed in red and had the words You Are Here superimposed upon it. An embellishment on Brian's part, no doubt, but useful nonetheless. Take the right passage. Brian said. You'll reach a vertical shaft in about ten meters. That will take you down another five stories before it goes horizontal again. There should be hand rungs on the far wall of the shaft. Acknowledged. Fiona paused to adjust the strap that held her torch against her temple, then proceeded in the direction indicated. The ten meters of horizontal distance took an annoyingly long time to travel. The ducts were about one meter on each side, only large enough for her to crawl through on her hands and knees. The narrow beam from the torch provided the only illumination, save for a small amount of ambient light that filtered in through open vents. While the ventilation ducts were dark, however, they were far from quiet. The rush of air and the thrum of fans were a constant companion, joined by the echoes of conversations, the whine of drive turbines, and the myriad other sounds of an active skyport. So it was that Fiona did not become aware of the second person in the ventilation ducts until she was already halfway down the vertical shaft. The sound of feet against the rungs above her was light and quick, and even with her psychometabolic powers enhancing her senses, it took some time before she was able to pick it out among the ambient noise. Potential hostile detected, she told Sasha and Brian. She paused briefly on the climbing rungs, enhancing her sense of touch so that she could feel the vibrations caused by the other person's descent. Estimate that it is a woman, 55 to 60 kilograms, probably combat-capable. Range approximately 15 meters. She covered her torch and glanced briefly upward before continuing her descent. I see no indication that she is using a light source, which suggests supernatural vision or vision analogs. A tremor of worry resonated from Sasha. Vampire? Fiona frowned. Unlikely. If she had a vampire's resilience, she would simply have jumped down on top of me. Do you think she knows you've seen her? Brian asked. Before Fiona could reply, a soft clink of metal against metal sounded from approximately fifteen meters above her. She looked up in time to see a small gray sphere burst open just above her, spraying the ventilation shaft with some sort of oil. It must have been alchemical in nature, for it covered everything far more swiftly and thoroughly than one could reasonably have expected from a vessel of that size. 
In seconds, Fiona's entire body and everything around it were completely covered in a slick, colorless film. She grimaced. Grease bomb, she told Sasha and Brian. Descent temporarily halted. Stand by. She hooked an arm through the nearest climbing rung and reached into a pocket with her free hand. The grease bomb had left her hands and feet too slippery to gain any purchase against the metal rungs, so she locked herself in place with one elbow while she pulled out a handkerchief and carefully wiped her fingers. A thin black rope fell past Fiona on one side. She looked up and saw a slender woman, dressed all in black, rappelling down towards her. Fiona had expected that. Looking down, she saw that the rope extended to the bottom of the shaft. She quickly calculated that there wasn't time for her to pull out her own grappling hook before the other woman caught up with her. Grasping the rope with her handkerchief-wrapped hand, she let go of the wall and let herself slide down the rope, bracing her oil-slick boots against the walls to control the rate of her descent. She hit bottom in ten seconds, and immediately dove into the adjoining horizontal shaft. With her clothes and boots coated in oil, moving on her hands and knees was nearly impossible. Abandoning dignity, Fiona kicked off her shoes and pulled off her pants, then continued on in her socks and underwear. She only hoped the disguise amulet would hide her embarrassing condition when she left the skyport. Fiona crawled through the ducts as quickly as she could, taking random turns at the first three intersections she encountered. She was glad that she had emptied the contents of the package into her backpack before leaving the staging area. She would not have wanted to try and carry a package out of here after it had been covered in alchemical lubricant. She glanced briefly at the markings on each intersection she passed, feeding that information back to Sasha so Brian could keep track of her whereabouts. She could hear the other woman moving through the tunnels behind her. Though it was hard to gauge direction or distance through sound alone, the vibrations in the metal floor told Fiona that the distance between them had grown slightly. Unfortunately, the difference was only slight. The tremors from the other woman's pursuit had not fallen off sharply, as would have happened if they had taken different turns at one of those intersections. Hostel is still in pursuit, she told the others. Either she is unusually lucky, or she has some means of tracking me. Should we use the non-detection scroll? Sasha asked. It was keyed to all of us, so it should erase any scent marks or fingerprints you might have left. Negative, Fiona said firmly. You and Brian will need to use it after you leave. Guide me to some place quiet where I will have room to maneuver. I will confront her there. There's a storage room not far from you, Brian said. Take the next left and go out through the second vent on the floor. Fiona came to the vent less than a minute later. She no longer had the tools from her utility belt, so she pulled a combat knife from her shoulder harness and used it to pry open the grate. The room below was dark, as she had expected. After looking around with her torch and listening for any sign of trouble, she lowered herself down until she was hanging by her fingers. There was at least another meter between her and the floor, so she prepared her legs to absorb the fall and then let herself drop. The expected impact never came. Half a meter before she hit the floor, her fall was broken by something soft and elastic. The room lit up with a soft yellow glow, 
previously unseen sigils coming to life in a ring that had been sketched on the floor with some kind of invisible ink. She hung suspended in midair in a sphere of light above that circle, unable to reach floor, walls, or ceiling. Sasha must have felt her surprise through the link. Fiona, what's happening? Fiona reached out and touched the walls of the sphere. It resisted her touch gently but firmly. She felt a prickling against her skin when she pressed against it, but she did not notice any ill effects from touching it. Spelltrap, she told Sasha. Ritual magic from the look of it. It seems to have enveloped me in a kind of force field. Can you get out? Brian asked. Fiona pressed harder against the sphere with one hand, focusing the pressure into her fingertips. The prickling grew uncomfortably intense, but she found that she could force her hand outside the sphere. Eventually, she said, drawing her hand back inside and rubbing it to dispel the pins and needles sensation. I have lost most of my equipment, but I believe I can find a way out. She did not add that she almost certainly did not have enough time to do so. Frustration and anger rose up from deep inside her, and with an effort of will she walled them off and pushed them back down. Her emotions would not help her here. She needed to think, and to do so quickly. She had removed her shoulder harness and was in the process of weighting one end of it with her knife when the door to the storeroom opened and someone slipped inside. The woman shut the door behind her, locked it, and switched on the light before turning her attention to Fiona. As Fiona had guessed, she looked to be about 60 kilos and 175 centimeters tall, a little taller than Fiona, but similarly proportioned. She had the look of a dancer about her, sleek and athletic. She was covered in a black bodysuit, with a utility belt, backpack, and equipment harness. She was armed with a pistol, a stun gun, and several small gray spheres that hung from clips on her belt, which were probably smoke grenades or additional grease bombs. Her unkempt, multicolored hair was pulled back away from her face by a large hair comb, but it flew out in all directions behind her head. She looked young, no more than 18 or 19, but her large eyes held more maturity than Fiona had typically seen in a woman of that age. She looked up at Fiona with a mixture of satisfaction and sympathy. You led me on a good chase. Her tone was conversational, that of one professional to another. I should thank you. It's been a while since someone's given me a workout like that. Fiona looked around at the force field sphere. You seem to have had the situation well under control, she said, forcing herself not to show any of the frustration she felt. Out of professional curiosity, how did you know I would come here? The other woman shrugged. This wasn't the only one. I set up a few others here and there before the mission started. I figured I wasn't the only one who might use the vents to get out. I couldn't cover all the exits, but I picked the ones that felt right. Fiona raised an eyebrow. Just random luck, then. The runner twisted her lip into a wry half-grin. You'd be amazed how often that works for me. She gestured at Fiona's backpack. All right, enough shop talk. You know what I'm here for. Obediently, Fiona pulled out the stack of data cards, which were sealed in a plastic clamshell container, and the small metal box. She stretched out her hands to the runner, 
holding the object's palm upward. The younger woman snorted. (laughs) Yeah, see, that's not going to happen. No offense, but I know what you can do, and I'm not about to get within arm's reach of you. Just push him through the field and I'll pick him up. Fiona quickly covered her surprise at that. And what if I refuse? The police must certainly be on their way, and I doubt you can afford to stay here long. The runner looked disappointed. Do we really have to play that game? You hardly seem a murderer. Yeah, you're right about that. But I have no problem with using this. She took out the stun gun and held it up so Fiona could see it more closely. It wasn't just a melee range weapon. It was the type that was equipped with a pair of gas-propelled darts, which would deliver the weapon's charge to a target up to five meters away. I know you're pretty resilient, the runner said, but somehow I doubt that even you can stand up to 150,000 volts. Her expression turned sad. So why don't we quit screwing around, and you give me that package before my partner gets here? He's already killed two of your guys, and I'd really hate for you to be here when he shows up. Fiona felt her lip curl into a sneer, the anger starting to leak through behind her wall of control. Yes, I'm sure your heart bleeds for us. She pushed her fists through the force field in two sharp, sudden blows, dropping the box and the data cards on the floor in front of her. She noticed that this time her hands stung with pain after the impact, probably because she had struck the field with greater force. The runner came forward and quickly collected the objects, slipping them inside her backpack. Do you understand who you are working for? Fiona asked her, her voice low but intense. Do you have any idea what is in there? Yes, the woman said, her voice and eyes suddenly hard. I'm working for the one who's paying me. What's in there is a payout big enough that I won't have to worry about how I'm going to eat, or where Mom is going to get her medicine, or how I'm going to pay for an apartment in a neighborhood where I won't have to sleep in the bathtub every night because I'm afraid I'll be hit by stray gunfire. Beyond that, I don't care. Her pose softened, and she shrugged. Look, it's nothing personal. If your boss wants to hire me to help steal it back, I'll be happy to talk business with him. But that's another job. And right now, this job says I have to get this stuff out of here safely. She turned to go. If you can't understand that, find a different line of work, because you got no business being a runner anyway. She pulled out a communicator and held it to her ear. Valiant, this is Ferret. I've got the rock. Alpha Niner has been neutralized. Proceed to extraction. A man's voice crackled over the speaker. Ferret, Valiant here. Please confirm Alpha Niner has been neutralized. The woman took a deep breath and let it out before pushing the talk button. Affirmative. She took a bad fall during pursuit and broke her neck. I think it was too much even for her regen power. Good work, Ferret. I'd rather put a couple of bullets in her head to be sure, but it's better if it looks like an accident. I'm heading out now. Vixen's going to take care of clearing the others. See you in the future. The runner put the communicator away. Not if I see you first, she muttered. She looked back at Fiona. That spell will burn itself out in about five minutes. I don't think he'll come after you now, but you might want to lay low for a little while, just in case. She lowered her eyes. I'm sorry I couldn't do the same for your friends. I really am. 
Fiona said nothing as the woman left. As the door swung shut, she turned her thoughts back to the link. Brian. Sasha. Abort mission. Repeat. Abort mission. Proceed to extraction by the most direct possible means. I will meet you at the rendezvous point. Fiona knew Sasha could sense the tension in her thoughts. She could feel her trying to get in, under the surface, to the emotions beneath, but Fiona rebuffed her firmly. Understood, Sasha said at last, sounding hurt. Do you need any help getting out? Why would I? I am no longer carrying anything illicit, and they never look at people who are leaving a skyport. Go. I will be fine. Okay. Be safe, love. Reluctantly, Sasha withdrew the link, and her and Brian's thoughts faded from Fiona's awareness. For a long moment, Fiona just stood there, her feet resting on invisible force, her arms rigid at her sides. The scream began slowly, rising up from a place deep inside her, building and building until it tore at her throat and echoed off the walls of the room. She pounded the walls of the force field with her fists, her feet, even her forehead, lashing out again and again with psychically enhanced strength. Her breath expended itself, and she sucked down air again to give further voice to her rage. Her body stung wherever she struck the force field, and the pain drove her to strike even harder, howling and snarling like a rabid animal. The force field shuddered under the relentless assault, its golden light growing weaker as each impact stole some of its energy. At last, the sigils burned out and the field collapsed, dumping her unceremoniously onto the cold, hard floor. She lay where she fell, her whole body quivering with her screams, the raw emotion pouring out of her like water through a shattered dam. At some point, the screams gave way to sobs, and she shuddered and wailed and wept like a child, both for her friends and for her shame at having failed them so completely. And that's the end of Chapter 11. Come back next time, when Daniel grapples with the aftermath of their mission, and gets some unexpected help from Ava Salindi. Dorothy Sayers said, The one thing which seems to me quite impossible is to take into consideration the kind of book one is expected to write. Surely one can only write the book that is there to be written. So, let's see what was there for me to write this week. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of January 2nd through January 8th. I wrote 6,111 words this week, over the course of 8.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 741 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 266 days without breaking my chain. This week I'm closing in on the finale of Honor Bound. Thanks to some help from their allies, Natasha and Honor are now out of immediate danger, and pulling together the resources to stop the deeper threat that they've stumbled into. Honor is on the verge of a crucial moment of self-discovery, when she will set aside her mask and embrace her true self. 
This is the pivotal moment in the romance beat sheet, the one that finally makes it possible for our heroes to be together. Natasha's pivot started in Chapter 39, but we're going to have to wait until she and Honor are reunited before she can make the big outward gesture that shows how she's changed. The story is now in Chapter 40, and the manuscript is over 112,000 words. This week, I also began making plans for the Honor-Bound audiobook. Because this book is an FF romance, and it's being released under a pen name, I decided that it really needs a female narrator. I reached out to two excellent narrating professionals, and they suggested working together on the project, with one narrator voicing Honor's chapters, and the other voicing Natasha's. They will also be voicing all of the dialogue for their respective characters, and we'll be dividing up the other characters in the book so that each character has a consistent voice. I'm very excited about this, and I look forward to telling you more when we've got the contract signed and the recording is underway. Watch this space! Over on the Patreon feed, we have two new patrons this month. Please welcome Lisa and Catherine. Both of these patrons have taken advantage of Patreon's new annual subscription option. When you prepay for an entire year's support in advance, you get 8% off the price of that donation tier. That's roughly equivalent to getting one month for free. If you're supporting at the $1 level, you pay $11.04. This actually works out to be more money for me, because less of your contribution is being eaten up by transaction fees. $1 patrons get access to exclusive Metamore City artwork, a patrons-only Discord server, and author commentaries on past episodes, plus an annual holiday card as a thank you for your support. Upgrade to the $3 level, and you'll get sneak peeks, cover reveals, character bios, and other cool stuff. Plus, you can read the first draft of Honor Bound while I'm writing it. Higher tiers can get additional perks, such as early access to ebooks, free copies of audiobooks and paperbacks, and even one on one coaching on your writing. If you live in the UK or the EU, you can even make your pledge in pounds or euros, so you won't have to worry about changing exchange rates. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much. I couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi! If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.